0: Welcome to the Sunday morning service at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia, where Pastor Lauren Regeer opens God's Word each week to provide us with biblically based teaching that helps you meet life head on. Thank you for joining us, and may your hearts be blessed as God's Word is taught. And now, here is Pastor Lauren Regeer. Amen. Thank you, Jason. What a challenging song, and what a fitting song for the series we're in. Uh, courage in Crisis. Take your Bibles, please. Second Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings 18. Uh, what a great um, song that was. Who will stand in strong in a day of challenge, a day of fear? And I don't know exactly uh, how you respond to crisis. Do you run in circles? Scream? Shout? Do you put your, perhaps, head in the sand? Do you try to ignore it? Or do you get bitter? Hurt? Uh, do you get afraid? There's a lot of all these emotions and reactions to the challenges of life today, but the question is, who will stand like Gideon? The call comes to all of us, male or female, who will stand courageously for the cause of Christ. Great song today. Second Kings chapter 18. I just wanted to say it's good to have Megan here, Megan Carter. Some of you had heard that she was involved in an accident. Um, a car ran a red light, struck her car. And I think your car rolled four or five times. She said, I, I lost count after a while. But uh, God spared her life, amen? And we're thankful to her. She's here, a little bit sore and bruised up, but we're glad that she's here. Her life was spared. God's got, her, uh, got a purpose for her life, as He does for all of our lives. But uh, thank you uh, to the Lord for really protecting and sparing her. And we're grateful to see her today. What a privilege it is. Courage in crisis. I wonder how... You stand in a day of difficulty. We're going to the second in our character study this morning about standing strong. His name is King Hezekiah, courage in the face of overwhelming odds. Father, we commit our time in the Word this morning to you. I pray that you would remove distractions from our mind. And Lord, help us to focus in on the truths the Spirit of God would like to teach us from the Word of God. Thank you for such a book as ours, given to us from heaven by God's own pen. We're grateful for that. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us your heart, your mind about even bolstering our our spirit in a day that's fraught with difficulty, trials, tests, and opposition. We thank you so much for the example of the scripture that was written for our learning. And I pray that we would garner great truths and that, Lord, we'd be more like you as a result of our study of the life of King Hezekiah. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Kings chapter eighteen. For sake of the context, we're going to read the first eighteen verses. Last week, if I would remind you, we mentioned the prophet Jeremiah, who was the last voice of warning to the nation of Judah. If you remember, if you were here, he was called the weeping prophet. But he cried out, "Judah, this is your last or late hour. But however you turn from your sin and idolatry, even at this last moment." God may well turn his uh, hand of judgment and have mercy upon you. But if you don't, know for sure. Jeremiah, that prophet, said, Know for sure that judgment is coming. And so they gathered Jeremiah, remember, from last week, and they drug him before the council, and they looked at him and said, This man must die. And what did he say? You can kill me if you want to, but the words I have are from God, and I'm not going to spare. I'm not going to change them. I've got a message from God, a calling from God, and a promise from God. So here, like Martin Luther, here I stand. I can do no other. What a great backbone, spine, Jeremiah had in the day of trouble, the courage of a prophet in crisis. Today we look at the courage of a king, in crisis as well. Let's read a few verses together, beginning in chapter 18, verse 1. Now it came to pass, the third year of Hosea, uh, son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old was he when he began to reign, just a youngster. and He reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. He was a co-regent with Ahaz for 11 years as well. His mother's name was Abai the daughter of Zechariah, and he did that was right. This is King Hezekiah, did that was right in the sight of the Lord. Not many kings have that uh, to their credit. Israel had none. Judah had a couple, three, that really stood up for the Lord. After, of course, David and Solomon, the divided kingdom. This is the time in which we find ourselves in the text. He did that was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, did, his forefather. And he removed the high places. Break the images, cut down the groves, break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made, they turned it into an idol. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it. He called it Nehushtan, the bronze snake. Verse 5 is a telling verse about the man's character, this king. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel so that after him was none like him among the kings of Judah, nor any that were before him. For he clave to the Lord, and he departed not from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord commanded Moses, and the Lord was with him. Oh, that that might be said of all of us. And he prospered whithersoever he went forth, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria, the leading power of the day, served him not. And he smote the Philistines even unto the Gaza, the borders thereof, from the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. And it came to pass, in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, Sennacherib, another name, came up against Samaria and besieged it. This is really the region just to the north of Judah. And at the end of three years, they took it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, that is the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was taken. Israel was removed into captivity. And the king of Assyria did carry away Israel into, unto Assyria and put them in Halah and in ha- uh, Haber by the river Gozan and the cities of the Medes. Here's the reason, verse 12, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant and all that Moses the servant of the Lord commanded and would not hear them nor do them. So finally the axe fell. Israel was taken into captivity. Judah Remained a few more years. Now, in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah, did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them? And King Hezekiah of Judah sent the king of Assyria to Lachish, reminding him that he had paid tribute already. Imagine uh, paying a king the amount that he did for tribute money just to keep him off your back. But Hezekiah paid the king of Assyria, the emperor then of the world, paid him 11 tons of silver, one ton of gold. How many of you have that stashed away in a drawer perhaps at your house? I'd like to meet you after the service. This was just to put off the king of Assyria for a little while. And Hezekiah did that. But I want us to know that uh, uh, the context really of this time, here's uh, really a a map, if you can see it behind me, of the uh, Assyrian Empire. It was on the rise at the time Hezekiah was the king of Judah. Already they had really demolished the northern kingdom and taken them into captivity as was their custom to really vacate uh, by taking all the patriots and all the citizens away, especially those of any means or of any stature in the country. He would remove them, leaving perhaps a residue of folks that were poor and ne'er-do-wells. He would leave those, but he took most of the brain trust of the land and he would just take them into captivity. His eyes were set now on Judah. Judah. Already conquering 46 cities around Jerusalem in Judah, he is surrounding the people. And uh, that's really the context we find ourselves in. Hezekiah is the 12th king of Judah. The time that we find ourselves in, if you like history, is around 705 B.C. His daddy, I just want to share perhaps the context of what we're talking about. Hezekiah was a great expansionist. Uh, He had built a tunnel. Uh, from the uh, spring Gihon all the way to the pool of Siloam, downhill of course, that's how water flows, and he had built this tunnel uh, to supply the city, this is really close to the palace as well, uh, the, 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 not the, the spring, but the pool of Siloam where the water was directed from outside the city walls into, water being the most precious commodity, especially during a siege. And so he had constructed this underground tunnel. In fact, our team, when we were there, had an opportunity to visit this and walk through. this this tunnel is nearly three centuries old. And we got a splash, it's some places about knee deep. And our team splashed down this tunnel the whole the whole way. It's wonderfully effective and still works after three but this was his idea. He was an expansionist. He, he really enlarged the borders of Jerusalem nearly three times during his reign and put walls up around. A great king in many regards. Uh, he himself, however, uh, grew up in a home. And I want to share this with you because uh, it's, a, it's an important concept here. The context for this uh, wonderful uh, reign of his is that he was, he didn't grow up in a home where you would expect uh, he would just hear all the Bible stories and hear these wonderful songs. In his early days, he grew up under King his daddy, King Ahaz, who was arguably the worst king of Judah, uh, proving the point that there can good come out of some evil homes. Tonight, we're going to talk about the law of echoes and how the influence of parents has such a strong uh, compass in the lives of their children, but here's, a, here's an, ex- an exemption or uh, perhaps an exception from that. He grew up in Ahaz's home, who was the, perhaps the worst king Judah ever had, and yet God put in his heart this internal compass to do what's right. The context for his life is he didn't hear the Bible stories growing up. He didn't hear the songs, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the book of Moses tells me, so he didn't hear those. He didn't. And yet, I'm going to tell you this, it is an incomparable privilege to have great parents who love God, but even if you didn't or don't, it doesn't have to be your death warrant to spiritual things. It's just it's true that not every great parent, without exception, produces godly kids, But God can mightily use a child that grows up in a spiritual vacuum. That was Hezekiah's life story. And the reason God can do that is because he's God. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound, Romans 5 and twenty, and so where sin abounded <clears throat> in Ahaz's life, and what a, what a ruffian, what a, uh, what a counter Christian Ahaz was, what an anti God person Ahaz was, his daddy. In fact, uh, Ahaz uh, was off on one of his jaunts, and he worshipped at a shrine or a temple of a, <clears throat> of a false god, he came running home with the blueprints of that temple and imposed them and remodeled the temple according to this false god and, and allowed in the very courtyard shrines to be erected to false deities in Canaan at the time. That was, that was Hezekiah's youth. His daddy actually took his own children to the altars of Molech and sacrificed his sons in the fire. and so a sense, Hezekiah was a survivor of a daddy who believed in abortion. And he grew up in this kind of home. And that's the context. And I I, I know that Hezekiah wasn't perfect. We know that. He paid the tribute money that I just read about to the Assyrian Empire just to keep them off his back. We know that that's Probably not the best thing to do. He should, should have stood. But here we see that he has, for the most part, been a great king. The end of his life, if you'll know the story of Hezekiah, he asked for 15 more years, right? Remember that story? He was sick unto death. The prophet said, you're going to die. Get your house in order. And he cried out, Lord, you've known my heart and my record, my track record. Please give me more time. Remember how many years God gave him? Fifteen more years. How would you like to live knowing the exact day or year that you would pass away? Well, That's the end of his life. But here we see him commended by God. And here we find at verse 14 and ensuing that these field commanders from Assyria gathered the troops there are at least 200,000 strong. And they are really beginning to surround uh, the, 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 the city of Jerusalem and the wolves are beginning to circle. There are, as I mentioned, hundreds of thousands, 200,000, at least uh, 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 troops that are staged in the area of Jerusalem, the field. And they send three commanders, field commanders, to negotiate a deal um, with uh, King Hezekiah. The, the city is locked up because of these soldiers from Assyria that are gathering. So there are three that come, Rabshakeh, Rabsiris, and Tartan. They began to negotiate simply by yelling out the terms of their contract or treaty with the men on the wall, the watchmen on the wall, just to kind of give you an idea of what's happening in 2 Kings 18. They are demeaning conditions because Assyria has the upper hand. Obviously, the wolves are circling and they have every conceivable advantage. Assyria has captured just about all the then known world. They were still tussling with Egypt a little bit, but they had conquered everything. And so here is the little city of Jerusalem, probably the last vestige left of Judah. Forty-six outlying cities have already, in Judah, have already succumbed. Israel's is already gone. And so these field generals, out of a courtesy, come to the very walls and say, hey, up there, listen up. Imagine this, all these mighty men, all the chariots and all the warriors are surrounding the city in a sense. And thousands, oh, they are outgunned, outmanned, outtrained. And here's little Jerusalem that is is really going the way of her sister Israel. In their hearts, they're given to idolatry. And although Hezekiah has made great strides in reforming and getting rid of some of these high places and groves to the idols. Yet, there is still this hanging on to idolatry within the country of Judah, which would later take them in to captivity to Babylon. But here's Assyria, and they send these three out. And this chapter 18 is really a diatribe as the conditions. And here are the conditions, basically. Rabshakeh says in verse 19, Speak now to Hezekiah. He's talking now to the officials on top of the wall of Jerusalem. Thus saith the great king. He's not talking about God, <laughs> he's talking about Sennacherib, the emperor of Assyria. The king of what confidence is this wherein thou trustest? In other words, this man, Rabshakeh, is saying to the officials that will go tell Hezekiah this, says, You have no confidence at all. Look at us and look at you. We've conquered the then known world. Uh, we, We have a greater army. In fact, if we were to loan you thousands and thousands of horses, this is something he would say later, you wouldn't even have enough soldiers to put on the horses we loan you. And so here's the deal. Either you surrender peacefully, or we come in with a sword and destroy you. And they say all these things in Hebrew. Uh, Verse 26 of chapter 18, then said, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah, to Rabshakeh, speak, I pray thee to thy servants in the Syrian language, for we understand it. He's saying this, we who are officials understand your talk, your language in Syrian. We understand Aramaic, but don't talk to us in Hebrew. They were actually saying all these things, demeaning things to the Hebrews in Hebrew so they wouldn't miss it. We want to discourage you. Context matters. So it's important to note here in verse 13 that there has already been a campaign that has really circled, engulfed, and overwhelmed Judah. This is really the last bastion Jerusalem still standing. Most of the villages, walled communities already have been subjugated. And we see that there is really not... You talk about odds that are stacked. He's surrounded by a vastly superior army, has every advantage, military prowess, resource, chariots, horses, soldiers. And this is not a case of Chihuahua versus bulldog. This is a case of kitty cat versus bulldozer. There's not any comparison between these powers. It is hopeless. By every measure, they have no more money to pay off Assyria. They have no more places to run and hide. All cities surrounding Jerusalem have been vanquished and Israel to the north has been overwhelmed there is no help from any quarter in 721 22 bc Israel was taken away this is a few years later and now they are next in the crosshairs of assyria and why are they there they are there because of the same reason you and i become taken to the cross or to the crossroads it is because our sin has led us there In this case, the sin of the nation wasn't as bad as Israel's, but they were well on their way. sin had destroyed their moral fiber and character and backbone. And there was still a remnant, however, in Judah that stood, Hezekiah being one of those that believed God, became a cheerleader really for God's goodness, God's power. And they're hemmed in. Really, if you've ever played chess, it's that point where that Opponent of yours says what? Checkmate. You've got no other move to make. Ever heard that when God looks at you and says, checkmate. What are you going to do now? Some of you perhaps are surrounded this morning by trouble. You can't pay the bills perhaps. You don't know how you're going to do that. Health threatens you. You look at the status we're in, in America, and you wondered, what shall we do? Well, that's the context. They are surrounded. We know that Israel has gone into captivity because of, verse 12, their sin, and Judah is well on her way. That's, that's the context. Now we see the commendation for this man, uh, the commendation of Hezekiah in crisis. We see it in chapters, uh, chapter 18, through through, 2 through 7, chapter 19, we see it as well. In fact, I have circled the amount of times, the amount of times, the, the rulers, that, that, that triumphant the field commanders come and say about, about Hezekiah's character, you can't trust in the Lord. Chapter 18, verse 5, we see it, first of all, uh, we see that he trusted Hezekiah in the Lord God of Israel. There's none like him. I mention that because not only did the Spirit of God who inspired this book know that all those around him, Hezekiah, knew it as well. I've circled a amount of times the word confidence or trust, at least five or six times, verse 19 of chapter 18. What confidence is this? They're, they're, really, uh, they're making fun of him. He's, a, he's the last cheerleader for faith in God. Can you imagine the, wall, the walls are, are covered with guards and sentinels and they're looking at an impossible situation and these who are taunting them, flaunting their power. say just a matter of a moment before we come roaring in and take the city. You have this last reprieve. You can surrender. What confidence do you have? ever had a friend at work say that? I mean, how can you smile through the storm you're in? What confidence do you have? What are you putting your faith in? Well, this is our most... and we see it again. Uh, Verse 20, now in whom dost thou trust? Verse 22, but if you say unto me, we trust to the Lord our God. They said, isn't that the God that just kind of succumbed to our power in Israel to the north, and we've heard that you're taking down his shrines, so you must not believe in him either. Really, what Hezekiah did when he came to power is he removed all the false shrines. They didn't know the difference. And he wanted to centralize again, worship in Jerusalem. That's with command of God. And he did that, and they mistook that as, you're taking down the very shrines to your God. <laughs> Who are you putting confidence in? Your God is a weakling, Hezekiah. But this was his most noble quality. We see it as it goes on, verse 29. They're talking to the people now, these three field commanders around the wall. Let not Hezekiah deceive you, for God shall not be able, or he, Hezekiah, shall not be able to deliver you out of his hand. And then verse 30, neither let Hezekiah make you trust. Don't don't let him make you trust the Lord, saying the Lord will deliver us. And this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king. Don't let, him, don't let him cheerlead for the greatness of God at a time like this because, pal, we're coming in and we're destroying this place if you don't surrender. That's how bad it was. I, with many of you, listened to the State of the Union address and uh, my wife after it was over, leans over to me and says, I don't think I've ever been as nervous, discouraged, and fearful, I don't know if you use those exact words, about the state of our country as I am now. It was basically an hour plus about the government socialism, giving us more and more money. We all vote for that, but where's it coming from, right? And this idea of 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 globalism, inviting friends into the picture. And after it was over, she said, I don't know. She says, I don't want to go through this whole thing in the spirit of growing concern about our country, even an attack on the Constitution. A hidden jab. And I looked at her and I said, but you've got me. <laughs> and she says, like I said, I've never been so worried about the state of America. And can you imagine on the wall that day as the Hebrews began to talk or listen in Hebrew, as they looked at each other and they said, we've never been so worried about the state of God's promised people, promised land. Well, I love the commendation that he has. The commendation is found in verses 5-6. He, he clave to the Lord, chapter 18, departed not from following him in the spite of all all this stuff around him, in spite of those who had given themselves to idolatry, he kept the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses. And I like that little phrase, the Lord was with him. And he not just here and there, not temporarily, uh, not specific to a location, but whithersoever he went forth. And to his credit, he alone rebelled against the king of Assyria and served him not. That's why they're knocking on the door. They didn't like rebels. They keep looking at him and the whole diatribe chapter 18 is about this. Who are you trusting in? Who in the world are you trusting in? What confidence? What strength? Egypt won't help you. If you say, We trust in the Lord, what good has He done for your nation to the north? What good is your God in crisis? Egypt can't help. We've spoken to your God. This is props, verse 25. The hardest slap against the face. We have talked to your God and we understand now that we are on your God's side and that's why we're here. We're coming as a juggernaut from God Himself to slap you around because God is judging you. Wow, the last straw, right? God is on our side now. Verses 29 and 30, chapter 18. Rapsicah, excuse me, king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you. He will not deliver you. Well, that's chapter 18, and yet throughout the chapter we see the confidence, the commendation That the Lord places in this king, although surrounded by so many that wanted to destroy him. Armies stood against him. And here it is. What a moment this is. What would Hezekiah do? Are you worried a bit about your own future? Are you worried about your own health? You worried about America? You worried about what are you worried about? I have a caption after verse 37 in my Bible of chapter 18. The king had commanded none of the people to answer this group that came from Assyria, just to be quiet, like God had commanded Joshua around the city of Jericho. Just don't speak. Don't say anything back. <laughs> verse 37, then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, was over the household, Shebna, the scribe, Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes rent and told him the words of Rabshakeh. What would Hezekiah do? Where would Hezekiah go? In this context, it was not surprising that fear would blossom throughout the streets of Jerusalem as they realized it wouldn't be long before they would either feel the sting of slavery or they would feel the sting of the sword. I have a caption under verse 37. It's a perfect day for sackcloth. First verse nine, verse chapter 19, verse 1, It came to pass when the king Hezekiah heard it, that he rent his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth. I don't know if you even have a change of sackcloth in your closet or not. Uh, The king didn't stop and go have a change of sackcloth made for him, he had some available. Do you know that that was a garment worn in those days for what purpose? Often in a show of distress or mourning or great alarm, they would rend their clothes and then cover themselves with sackcloth and sometimes cover themselves with ashes as a, as a sign of tremendous grief of spirit. And this king was not above having a change of sackcloth in his closet And brothers and sisters in Christ, it's okay to wear that with the appropriate season and time. Woe is me. We are undone. A man came home to his distraught wife, tears. The kitchen was full of smoke, fire trucks outside. And he said, honey, what is wrong? What happened? Everything, she said, the roast caught on fire, it fell through the oven rack and ruined the apple pie. Well, what about the soup? Don't we have any soup? She said, well, that's all I had to put the fire out with. We come now to Hezekiah's purple heart moment, really. And what does he do? How does he express his concern in a time of crisis? they Very telling marks of courage in crisis. Note them in closing, please. His uh, courage, courageous people don't ignore the problem. They don't keep whistling past a serious, grievous situation. They don't just say, whatever. We'll just try to kind of hunker down here and maybe they'll walk on by. Ever had a friend say, well, brother, and this is okay. I'll pray for you. Sometimes that's the best and only response. But the first thing we see about this king is his courage is really galvanized by saying, okay, I can't ignore the problem. It's here, 200,000 strong. It's surrounding the city. And Lord, it's real. We're in a crisis here. But he doesn't panic, run in circles, circle, scream and shout. He humbles himself. I think courageous people do that. You see that in the first three verses. He, he finds himself that change of sackcloth and he covers himself with it. What does he do? He runs to God. He goes to the house of the Lord. Men, it's not just for others, ladies, to humble themselves first. Leaders, kings, husbands, deacons, pastors. We must lead the way, put aside pride, and humbly admit what he does in verse 3. This is a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy. For the children have come to the birth and there's not strength to bring forth. What does he mean by that cliche or phrase? He's saying uh, this is a, a moment of delivery for us from Assyria, but we, Lord, do not have the strength to bring this delivery to bear. We are hopeless and we are helpless. We ain't got nothing and lord it's really he knew this it is because like our sister israel it is because of our sin but lord understand look at us in mercy remember us but we are powerless the admission of weakness is vital it is your own illusion of strength that has drawn you away from God for so long. When's the last time you've put on sackcloth? When's the last time you've said, Daddy, this house of ours is not in order spiritually? This church, this land, instead of saying, Woe is me, I hope this kind of blows over, when's the last time you've put sackcloth, humbled yourself, and cried out before the Lord? I'm not saying literally sackcloth, but got on your knees and said, Lord, I just need your help. We need your help. We're so far from you. And Lord, if you would help us. We are powerless even to bring the delivery to bear. We we don't have any strength in our own. Thirdly, he runs to God. I love this verse. He went to the house of the Lord. He doesn't go... Try to count his soldiers. He goes to God. Are you doing that, friend? Are you? I'll figure it out. I'll ask my boss for a raise. Maybe we can sell this or that and get through this crisis. Would you please go to God? God. There he stands waiting to hear from you. Don't waltz in his presence with a whistle and a grin. Come to him humbly on your knees. Humble yourselves, Lord. We can't do it. We can't. I can't. And then he seeks wise counsel. You see, he takes his leaders, his cabinet, his priests. says, you guys get the sackcloth on too. And let's go find the prophet Isaiah. He knows the Lord. And they send him the message. Isaiah comforts their heart. Verse 6. But he seeks wise counsel. I I love that. Leadership is lonely by nature, it is. But it doesn't have to be exempt from good counsel. It's a great lesson for all of us in leadership. Uh, Lone rangers don't last long. You need friends that know the Lord and can pray. Courageous people are not resistant to good counsel. He gathered the senior priests. He gathered Isaiah. Isaiah and he were friends. Not on Facebook, they were real friends. So he seeks counsel. Isaiah tells him in verse 6, Don't be afraid, don't worry about Assyria. King Sennacherib of Assyria will return, die by the sword, which did happen. God's always right. The general returns to camp. He hears of another army attacking the southern flank of the Assyrian army. He retreats. But before he does, just to kind of condense the story, a lot of details here, he sends the king back a letter. You know what the letter said? I'll be back. He says, Hezekiah, you might have got a little bit of time here, but I'm going to come back, and when I do, you're a dead man. Last point about courage in crisis. You better know how to pray. Been praying much? How are you praying? Um, I think this is the, one of the sweetest prayers, uh, most courageous prayers in the Bible. Uh, 2 Kings 19, verse 15 through 19. Let's read it. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God. Well, first of all, I want you to picture this. He gets the letter. They hand deliver it to him. And here's what he does. He just simply spreads it out before the Lord. Got a light right here, so I like this. He just spreads it out right there. He says, Lord, can you read? (laughs) Can you see this? you see what they're saying to me? And so he prays this prayer. Verse 15, O Lord, Lord God of Israel, which dwelleth between the cherubims. It's that small 24-inch piece of furniture in the Holy of Holies, the place God had designed to be the place of His dwelling, although He is a God who dwells everywhere. Specifically, He had committed Himself to this people. That wasn't very far from where Hezekiah lived And was in the house of the Lord. God, you're right there. Pointed to that room to which the high priest alone was allowed to enter. Lord, you're right here. And not only that, you're the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heaven and the earth. Assyria isn't much in the context of your majesty. Verse 16, bow down thy ear and hear, Lord, open thine eyes and see. Hear the words of Sennacherib, which he hath sent him to reproach the living God. These aren't words against me. These are words, Lord, on this paper against you. But truth, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands. We, we alone remain Cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they have destroyed them. Now therefore, you see the prayer begins with exaltation. There's no god like you. And then it goes to invocation. Lord, bow down thine ear. Save us, verse 19, out of his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth, may know that I'm somebody, no, may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. This prayer is wonderful. It's a wonderful prayer that starts with exaltation, it goes then to invocation, and then ends with vindication. You're in trouble, perhaps, and you want God to bring you relief. You're in trouble, perhaps, and you want God to bring you some money. You're in trouble, perhaps, and you want God to fix your relationship or fix your marriage. You're in trouble, perhaps, and you have this motive that may be okay, but it's not God's heart. Here's a man who's in crisis and prays the exact thing that's on God's heart because he knew God, and he trusted God, and the reason he told his people, don't give up on God. What is Assyria is because of his divine confidence that there was a God, a majestic God in heaven that was bigger than Assyria. Is God bigger than your problem? Is he? Is God bigger than any issue you Yes. He's the creator of it all. He dwells not only in heaven, he dwells in here. And so start your prayer in crisis by this wonderful thought, God, you're bigger, the the therapy of majesty, God, you're bigger, Isaiah 40, you're bigger than this. And then, invocation, Lord, would you please, would you please attend to this thing? Your time, your way, but Lord, would you please attend it? Reason, the reason. I want, Lord, your name to be glorified in my problem. I want your name to be lifted up so that people would know you're great. I want your name to be magnified through this cancer, through this whatever it is, through this difficulty, through this relationship that I've not been able to untangle for years. Lord, I want you, by my response and my humility and your great power and your great victory, I want your name to be lifted up, praised. And so Isaiah's already told them something, a little secret. He says, Isaiah said, your prayer's been heard. God hears those kinds of prayers. Exalt, invocation, vindication. And um, Isaiah says, your prayer's going to be heard. God's going to send a blast. (laughs) You know the story. What happens is overnight, as they're retreating, overnight God sends an angel, one, just one, and kills 185,000, 180, one angel, 185,000 Assyrians in a single blast or blow. Now, now some, some of you perhaps this morning have forgotten how big your God is. If one of his angels can take out 185,000 soldiers, then God's great arm will gain you the victory as well. I'm not saying God is going to make you rich, healthy, prosperous, and all these things. I'm just saying God exists that His glory might be magnified through your difficulties. And if you let Him, He will. Let's pray together. Father, what a great, great narrative. What a great account, true story of Your grace and glory, exemplified in overwhelming odds. Thank you for Hezekiah's trust and faith in you. And I pray for those of us this morning that perhaps are waning because of the overwhelming situation we're living in. Lord, I pray that you would be honored, uh, even in our response to our own difficulty, that we would raise your name up, exalt you, praise you, and want that to be the the, the end of our difficulty that your name would be glorified. Let's stand together, shall we? Thank you for joining us today. Please tune in each week for new messages from Pastor Lauren Regeer at Bible Baptist Church in Hampton, Georgia. Until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.